0: Welcome to the podcast. I am Shane Barker, your host of Shane Barker's Marketing Madness podcast. Today we're gonna discuss the pillars of content marketing funnel. My guest, Joe Lazowski, is a head of marketing at Contently. A technology marketing journalist, Joe is a regular keynote speaker at several major industry conferences. He's also a best-selling author with his book, The Storytelling Edge, How to Transform Your Business. for coming on the show today, bud. Shane, great to be here with you. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So we usually like to start this off. Obviously, a lot of people already know about your background and some stuff that's going on, this reason why they want to listen to you today. But I wanted to kind of go in a little bit of background, kind of like, like where did you grow up? Like I know you said right now you're in New York City. Of course, nobody can see you, I can. But you're in New York City right now. Did you grow up in New York? Or Give us a little background.
1: Jersey boy, right over the river. So grew up looking at the New York skyline from the hill above my house, just imagining like all Jersey boys your chance to get a little piece of that island okay. for yourself and uh, and yeah and I've been in the city the last 12 years.
0: Nice, nice 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 so you moved there we don't need to get into age but you how long were you in Jersey for?
1: Uh, grew up in Jersey I went to school at Sarah Lawrence College right outside the city um, then moved to the city after
0: after college. Awesome awesome was that a big transition what about families family mad that you're in New York and you should be in Jersey hanging out or what?
1: You know, it's uh, it's pretty easy. There's uh, this little short bus called the, the uh, Spanish Express oh. that uh, goes straight to my mom's house in like 20 minutes. When I was a kid, I used to sneak on that bus to go in the city. There was a dude in the back who would make pina coladas and margaritas and like daiquiris for three bucks. So that was a big win when I was 16 years old, sneaking in to go to like CBGB shows at uh.
0: Yeah, that's the deal. So He's what happened that. to that guy? Like, did, and did I mean, did he, was he running that like 20 years and the bus driver never found out? Or like, was that? I mean, that's, that's, I think I knew that about that.
1: Eventually the bus got a little more legit. Like they got their own gate at Port Authority. They stopped only dropping off on the street. So I think Port, like it was a deal with Port Authority where you had to kill the margarita machine in the back in exchange for becoming like a more official form of public transportation. That's ridiculous. Bureaucracy, man.
0: There's not a lot of things that piss me off, but now that you tell me about the margarita guy that got shut down, it's ridiculous. What kind of world do we live in when you can't be 16-year-old and sip on a margarita and get off to New York City?
1: I know. It's not the America that I grew up in.
0: Serious? I didn't want to bring that up right now. We could jump into politics right now, but we'll wait. It's just, and once again, I don't really care about politics, but I do care about margaritas. That's something that's always been really close to my heart. So, awesome. So, that was when you're 16, so you're... Obviously, doing all kinds of illegal stuff, which is awesome. Not to say that I wasn't when the opportunity presented itself. So. And so, are you from like a big family in Jersey? You guys got a big old family out there, or it's, you know, two people, ten people, fifty people? Is so You guys have a gang or anything? Or?
1: No, I was uh, I was raised by dogs. Actually, a single mom. She's a vet. Grew up in a house attached to her animal hospital. So, like the big the big family was mostly canine.
0: God, you're serious? Are you you really? So you are you a dog person? Can we say you're a dog person? I'm a, a
1: huge dog person. Yeah big dog person golden labs Ooh. retrievers mm. definitely top of the list for me although like we always had a lot of rescues yeah but yeah i'm like a big dog person so, you know like i love all dogs but preference is like a big happy goofy dog like that's that's peak dog in my And opinion.
0: that's golden retriever that's exactly the dog you said are the dog that like every day they're like you're back this is awesome like I don't know where you were for the last two hours, but I got nervous. This is so cool you're here again. And they'll do that for 15 years. Like every time they see you, it's just like a brand new, it's the best thing that's ever happened. It's the type of energy you want in your life. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. What's funny, they have, what is I've seen bumper stickers. that say, you know, act like the person that your dog thinks that you are or something like that, you know, or something where it comes down to like, Dogs are just always, and I'm a, I'm a huge dog person too. So I, we've got two dogs that are, we're both rescues. And um, and I just tell you, I mean, it's just like, you just can't, you know, I mean, there's there's times I come home, my wife's looking at me like, oh God, he's back. My dogs are like, hey, this is, good. <laughs> you got treats? This is awesome. You know? So it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. So you are a really big, do you, can you have a dog? you have a dog currently or no?
1: I don't. Like I travel so much for work. It's always been really hard to keep a dog. I'm getting close though. I feel like to the point where I'm ready that sort of responsibility in my life. You know, New York's a place where you're in a state of suspended adolescence for a long time. Yeah, yeah, so right. I'm like just getting to that point where I'm ready for the dog commitment.
0: There we go. That's good. Man. Yeah. You don't want to jump in too early. New York's a different city when it comes to, and it seems like San Francisco, right? It's like, you know, make that full commitment. It's not going like to just go run outside and go in your backyard for two hours. And you can bring them back in, right? Exactly. Yeah.
1: You got to eat dog walkers. You have to have the doggy daycare. I'm also like someone who believes a dog should have a yard to run around with you know yeah. that it's tough life for a city dog especially a bigger dog yeah so it's getting to that point of being you know ready to move out to the to the burbs i don't know if i'm quite there yet
0: yeah but you're on the cusp though Well you gotta you gotta keep us abreast of that but maybe send out a tweet or something when you get the dog or maybe put on instagram <laughs> or something we'll make it official
1: a lot of dog content
0: yeah you, you know dog. that's your numbers will go up through the roof like i've actually thought about renting another dog i was actually getting long story sure. i was gonna go on a road trip my wife's like you are not taking our dogs like literally there was no budget she's like i would I'll leave you if you try to take our dog. So I don't want to lose 50% of everything I own. So I was going to go rent a dog. I thought about it, like literally taking it with me to take pictures and have fun. But then I ended up keeping the dog too. So I got to be careful of that. And potty trained in and on the road. You know, that's a whole nother deal. That
1: does seem like it should be some sort of startup like Uber for dogs.
0: Right? Like, I mean, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, honestly, if it was a potty training dog, I would pay some cash for it. Like, you know, that's the only thing I was a little worried about is like, I go into the grocery store, I open all the windows. Of course, you know, it's, it's probably 70 degrees. It can't be 100 or anything. And then I come back and the dog's just, you know, taking a dump on my pillow. And it's like, whatever, bro. Sorry about that. And you're like, damn, that was my favorite pillow. <laughs> like, what do you do? Like, you know, you can't beat the dogs. You're like, yeah. You'd be like, hey, I get it, but you took a little dump while I was going and grabbing some orange juice and some water for you. And, you know, it is what it is. So maybe we'll think about it. I think it's Uber for dogs have potty trainings, their main feature. So we'll figure that out. That's we'll, that's a side business we'll talk about later. But so interesting fact. So, I mean, for me, interesting fact was that you were raised by your mom and like 4,000 dogs, right? I mean, that's kind of a, definitely an interesting fact. Anything else growing up? Is there anything else that you're like, yeah, there was not only that, but I mean, there was like this one thing that nobody knows about. It doesn't have to be too secret, but you know, is there anything else fun?
1: I had a giant juifro and I was a lead singer in a punk band and i was I cannot sing so that was like a very interesting like four year experience okay. would mostly just get away with it with very tight women's jeans and by just climbing on top of things and like hanging upside down and singing that way so it was like okay it makes sense he can't sing because he's hanging upside down right now in this like dingy punk club on in like bloomfield new jersey i played football even though I'm like 140 pounds. Yeah, there we go. Uh, So whenever I would watch the film for my high school games, it looked like they let like a seventh grader run out onto the field. Yeah, that's like probably covers a lot of the 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 fun facts. I wrote a really bad novella when I was 17 years old in high school, Uh uh, which helped get me into Sarah Lawrence. But would be like really really embarrassing if it leaked to the internet today.
0: Huh? So you'd pay big money if anybody has a copy of that they're hearing this.
1: Yeah, if you want to blackmail me, that's mm.
0: that's one way to do it. Ah, so many ways. So that's the the cool part. So the punk thing. So it's, so you actually did it for four years. So they were like, God, ah, you you were like either you felt you sounded awesome or somebody did because you just continued, right? You're like, this makes sense. Was that a career path that you're like, man, this is everybody's way too drunk at the concert because they obviously think I sing good or.
1: No, no one was drunk. It was a straight edge punk band. Like that was very much the scene it was like, no drinking, no drugs, like live that that hardcore life. No, I mean, it's just the standard for singing. And yeah, like a DIY, teenage, like hardcore punk scene is not super, super high. Yeah, I could do some falsettos when we started getting into a little bit of a screamo era. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of
0: ways to get around it. Oh, that's awesome. So you were very creative in your singing abilities. <laughs> so I you know I've always felt like I enjoy like being on stage so I used to have a record company this is many many moons ago and I say that very loosely I'm not like I was like you know part of like virgin records or something and I used to run a record company here in Sacramento that was very small time And I used to love being on stage and you know that kind of stuff and so I just gotta oh, be great to be a lead singer except I couldn't rap I couldn't sing I couldn't do anything for god's sakes but I like the idea of it it was always kind of fun you know kind of getting the you know get people pumped up before shows and stuff like that was always fun but I didn't take it anywhere because I would have sucked and nobody would listen to me so That's the end of that. But so tell us about your college. So you obviously went through, was it just obviously a four four year college type deal? What did you study in college?
1: Yeah, Sarah Lawrence is a liberal arts school right outside of New York. Actually, there was a New York Mag cover story about the college about a month ago about the secret cult at Sarah Lawrence. Did Did you read that story?
0: Oh, tell me more though.
1: So essentially, it was this dude, Larry Ray. Larry Ray was this pretty notorious New York crime, mobster guy. Uh, He actually got involved in a bunch of stuff. He's the reason that the Director of Homeland Security in 2004 had to step down because of his associations with Larry Ray from back when he was, uh, from when the Director of Homeland Security, I'm blanking on his name now, had been the police commissioner in New York. Oh yeah. Anyway, so Larry Ray went to prison and the year after I got out of Sarah Lawrence, after I graduated, so in the fall of 2010, Larry Ray got out of prison and he moved into his daughter's dorm at Sarah Lawrence, at least according to the story, yeah. in Sloan and Woods, one of the, these like kind of hippie houses yeah. at Sarah Lawrence. And basically started a cult with the other eight kids who lived in that dorm. And he lived on campus for a while. And then he moved all of them into this one bedroom apartment on the Upper East Side. And it's like a super wild story. And some of the kids are still in this like a little mini Larry Ray cult. A couple of them got out and were sources for the story. So that's, that's where Sarah Lawrence has been in the news. Mark Wahlberg just optioned this as a movie.
0: See, that's awesome. So now I have a question for you. Now is it awesome? Shane? I mean, I, think <laughs> I told you in the beginning, but I was like, we the name it is Shane Barker's Marketing Madness Podcast because literally we'll talk about marketing for whatever amount of period that is. But then we jump onto stuff like, no, Shane, let me tell you about this cult that happened here. I will tell you another thing. One of my past guests. This happened just two or three ago. I'm not going to tell you her name because you'll, you'll, well, you'll probably know who she is. We'll be able tell you off the air. Um, not that I need to do that because people are going to hear it anyways. She was in a cult until she was 21. Didn't know she was in a cult All the way her hopeful upbringing, she literally had to leave in the middle of the night and moved in with a guy that was her client that she'd write content for and they got married like three months later. How's that for? Yeah. Didn't even know she was in a cult. Wow. Like all of a sudden I was in the nursing program. And then everybody was like, you, I think you're in a cult. Like, she can't do this. She can't do that. And they can't talk to anybody on the pub. I mean, there's just some weird stuff going on. And she like had to like, her and her sister like bailed out on the cult in the middle of the night and has never gone back. When she was in the guy that <laughs> it was one of her clients off of like, get a freelancer. Remember that the site now it's like freelancer, like back in the an yeah. American writer, this was a client and they were talking on Skype and he's like, you got to get out of there. And she's like, what do you mean I got to get out of here? It's like, you need to get out of there. Like, it's a bad deal. And she's like, "What? Well, can I come to your house? And. He's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, that's super safe. Like, I don't know if I'd go from a cult to meeting a guy online. That's my client to go living with him. but it all worked out. They've been married for eight years and they got a successful business together. And I don't know why, Shit, so like, I don't know. We get a lot of, cult, month. I mean, this is what it is. Like might <laughs> have to rename the podcast, Shane Barker's cult talks or cult cultivations, or I don't know, we'll figure it out. But, but so Larry Ray is, I don't even know how to, like Larry Ray is okay. I'm going to have to look this up when we get off yeah. thing. I mean, this is like super, like, that is the kind of stuff I enjoy.
1: Yeah, he's like this. It's a crazy story. It's a very well written uh, cover story for New York Mag by another Sarah Lawrence grad. But yeah, Larry Ray's like this stocky, like, polo muscle shirt sort of dude, like, bald head, came in here and just started, like, using a lot of classic cult leader techniques around using psychological manipulation to get these kids into doing, like, a lot of weird sex acts and following him as sort of this deity almost. And He would get them to go uh, repair his house down in, I think, North Carolina or Virginia, and then charge them for damages that they did while doing all this forced labor on his house, and then would basically entrap them in paying him back all of this money. And it's just, it's freaking wild. So Sarah Lawrence, usually not a place you join a cult, usually just a very lovely art school um, right outside the city that looks like Hogwarts as one of the best writing programs in the country but right now it's uh it's getting a lot of heat for uh semi-enabling a cult
0: interesting and just when that's when they're like when you're very liberal. They're like, we'll let anything. It's not a big deal. We're gonna let the students do what they want, and then all of a sudden, like, well, except the whole cult thing. We probably should have stopped the cult. <laughs> we didn't yeah. think about that in the long term. we I mean,
1: like definitely some anti-cult stuff in the handbook now. Yeah,
0: they're gonna be like, so here's the deal. Just because of what happened two years ago, we're sorry to announce that there's no more cults. And people are gonna be like, what? It's half the reason I joined. I was looking for somebody to manipulate me from the mob. That's exciting stuff, man. So that's good. So is there? And people can't see this because we're on a podcast, but like. The way that I see you right now, like it looks like you're like part of the witness protection program because it's just like we're all black and it like kind of goes like like this thing. You have the New York background. I mean, is there a reason why you're not showing your face? Which is cool. It's a podcast. I didn't tell you it was going to be any. I just didn't know if you were part of the. Well, you weren't part of the cult. No, to be honest, it's just you can't answer.
1: Yeah, actually, it's just uh, it just uh, there's a bunch of stuff written in Sharpie on my forehead. I uh, you know, had a little wild night. Do
0: you make fun of us, Shane? I got eight people yeah. take like, a <laughs> road trip. Keep it up, Mr. Funny Man in California. That's a crazy story. That's awesome. That's the kind of stuff. That's the reason why I like these kind of interviews. But you just never know what you're going to find out. Now we're going to jump into content marketing, which is like nothing compared to Larry, right? I mean, I feel like Larry Ray, I know what that guy looks like. Like you explained it to me, but in my head, it was exactly how you explained it. Like Larry Ray, like I just see, I even see potentially, even though he was mobster, I almost see like a ducktail, but I guess he wouldn't have that. I don't know. Anyways, we'll, I'll look him up because he's definitely going to be probably going to have a, a book or what you said, maybe a movie. So good old Wahlberg trying to take advantage of that. that's a good deal. So, how did this, and well, let's transition this here. How did you get into content marketing? Like, how did this, obviously, you were a writer? Is that what you were kind of looking to do at the, the school you're going to?
1: Yeah, so journalist by trade. I started a news site called The Faster Times out of school uh, with some folks I'd worked with at Nerve, uh, which is the sex and pop culture mag that was kind of big in New York in the 90s and 2000s. So we started this news site. It was a very socialist business model in that. We would pay our writers seventy-five percent of the ad revenue they generated. Section editors, we get ten percent of the revenue. The problem was, while well, we we're getting a lot of traffic, you know, I had millions of readers, display ads paid terribly. So we're figuring out, okay, what are other ways we can make business uh, or make money in this business? So we started a branded content studio back in 2010 before they were really a big thing at publishers uh, and partnered with one ad agency in particular uh, to basically be their editorial wing. So leveraging all the freelance writers we used to create this brand new content offering. And yeah, and it was the, you know this era where brands were really getting into social media for the first time they needed to create content and connect directly with consumers. So we saw a pretty obvious need to start. we could start to fill. More and more I took on that Part of the business because it's where we were making all of our money, and that got me into this content marketing world of realizing, like, oh wow, there's this very interesting thing where brands now want to actually create like interesting content to help people navigate their finances or figure out how to use a new technology or understand what the future of their industry is going to be. And when I was doing that, Contently came out. They were in TechStars, one of the incubators in New York, uh, in 2011. And I was like, oh, this is a much smarter way of doing what we're trying to do. Because Contently had a platform, they had this network they were building of all these journalists all over the world. Like we had a few hundred, but they were building up thousands. Uh, so I hit up Shane Snow, uh, one of Contently's co-founders, and was like, hey, we've been doing this. Uh, we have some writers as well. would love to work with you guys. Started doing some work with Contently when there were three or four people. And then when I sold Faster Times, I came on to Contently as our editor-in-chief to build up our own content program or print mag or video stuff or blog the content strategist. And I've sort of been there ever since in a few different roles.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I was always, I was wondering that transition from where you were at with the magazine, the, the thing you guys were doing online into Constantly. So that's awesome. So Constantly was one of them. came out of Techstars, is that what you said? Yeah, Techstars. Cool, 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 cool. And that was, man, that was a little while ago now, huh? what, eight years ago?
1: Yeah, it's 2011 uh, into 2012, so the end of 2011. That sort of doing well in Techstars got some good buzz, propelled getting the seed funding and Series A, so, yeah, and there's actually like a lot of interesting startups that have come out of Techstars as well. Yeah. And, yeah, it's a great incubator program. It was really good for us. And it was sort of when the New York tech scene was very much more like a smaller community, very, de- you know, just getting off the ground as opposed to now where it's, you know, a lot of big tech is here.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also know that you, and so you have, you've been there ever since. You've been there for, what, 70 years?
1: Uh, yeah, started freelancing about seven years ago. I've uh, been there full time for about six years.
0: Cool. And so I also saw that you, there was over a content tech summit. Did you, I think you spoke over there, didn't you? At one of that, that, yeah. What did you speak on over there?
1: I talked about the four keys to great content marketing over there. So did a little neuroscience of storytelling, uh, Walked through some different content strategy models, talked about how to really do content across the entire customer journey instead of just viewing it as this top of funnel awareness, editorial activity, stuff like that.
0: So cool. So your obvious your your specialty is obviously writing, but also you're the editor in chief over there, right?
1: Uh, no, I'm our head of marketing. Oh, head of
0: marketing. Oh, I ah.
1: start, started out as editor in chief. Ah. Now they let me run the whole thing.
0: What? Man, look at that. They're like, no, here's the keys to the castle. Yeah. But they don't know what happened with the whole Larry thing, do they? That's going to be a whole. Do you think it's going to change things?
1: I mean, you know what? We started an investigative journalism foundation called the Contently Foundation back in the day. So maybe we can use that to to <laughs> find out. The true story. What the story behind the story is here.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, and I'm not advised. I'm not saying that you they should do that, but I'm just, I don't know, just something to look into, I guess. I want to know who's in your company and what's going on, right? <laughs> so you guys, so you and Shane Snow, so you guys also have a book. Didn't you guys do the the storytelling edge? Wasn't that you guys had we a did. Your business? When did that come out? That was just, what, a few years ago or is it? No, it came out last year. Last year. Okay. And so why did you and Shane decide to jump on a book like that? What was the, what was the premise of that?
1: So... It started when we, when Donald Trump got elected, and we were super depressed and needed a winter project together. So uh, we were actually in Portugal, speaking at both speaking at Web Summit for the election, and then we were like, "Ah oh, man, we need something to take our minds off things." So yeah, so we started working on this book. Basically, we realized there wasn't a book that really was very story driven that walked people through. Why stories are so impactful on us as human beings, mm-hmm. um and the patterns of great storytelling that people have used over time, and then, you know, taking those lessons and and how to apply it to your business and to your life and your career, especially in a leadership role. So you know most marketing books I find to be like a little bit pedantic or sort of reading like a really long white paper, and we wanted to write something that was a little more narrative nonfiction, very light, very fun but still would really teach people the fundamentals of uh, what great storytelling can do for you and, and
0: everything you're trying to do in your day to day work in life. And I think there is still a huge disconnect with, with brands and being able to really tell that story, right. That, of what their story is. I think a lot of brands assume whether you're small, medium size or large, but like, it's like, do people really care? Or how do I tell my story? Like, Oh, it's just my story. Like it's not that big of a deal, but I think people love that. Right. I mean, Wines being an example, there's beer, there's all kinds of stuff where, you know, wines, they'll go in like wine sales, people will come in and say, oh, let me tell you about this. And this, this came over from 500 years ago, the guy came over with a nickel, a wood nickel and one, you know, one seed and then he dropped the seed and then that's how he started doing this. And then he grew to this and he was a slave for 10 years and then he got out and he grew his orchard and then people were like, oh my God, this wine is so good. Cause you know, the story behind it, right? I mean, there's, there's something to that about you're able to tell a good story it makes everything better, right? And this I think the same thing with brands. And I think a lot of brands don't necessarily know how to do that. So would this be a book if I was a brand and I was listening to this and said, Hey, I feel I feel like we have a story, but I don't really know what that is. You just give like examples in the book. Is that what it is? Kind of like this is how you pull it out of your out of your story, your company, your brand or
1: yeah, we tell a lot of stories of brands that have been really successful in this way, but also a lot we go over the four keys to really effective storytelling and how to leverage those in the sort of stories that you could tell about your brand. You know, to your your whole point about beer and wine is really interesting because when we think about the original purpose of brands, it wasn't A marketing activity like we first came up with brands to be able to trace the line of production so that people knew where a product they were buying came from so they know like what the quality would be what they could expect and that lineage and that history is a lot of what's at the core of the value that having brands in the first place like this question why do we even have brands exists and so you know for something that is a food a wine like a cheese, like those are things that we really want to know the history of, like where it came from, what is the production cycle that's gone from you know the earth to my body. But that's less true for say like a marketing software company, right? Like origin stories and what motivates you does have a certain place. You know the fact that Contently was a company started by journalists to help them connect with brands that give them really high paying work is something that's important to us, but. It's not like our day-to-day content can be telling that story over and over again. Really, the stories that we have to tell have to address the things that our audience really cares about. And I think in B2B, that's surprisingly simple because if you can create content and tell stories that help people do their job better, they're going to really, really like you. They're going to feel really good about you. They're going to want to work with you. They're going to think that you're smart. So in so many ways, I think a lot of the content strategy frameworks that we have out there, a lot of the marketing advice that's out there tends to overcomplicate what brands actually need to do when it comes to telling their story, whereas it's really at its heart quite simple. If you're focused on the things your audience is actually interested about, if you're focused on telling stories in a way that makes it as easy as possible for them to immerse themselves in it, and if when you're telling your story you focus on the values behind what you're creating as opposed to just these bulleted press release memo talking points, you're much more likely to be successful.
0: Yeah, I think that's true, man. I think the problem is it just – especially these days because there's so much information out there. It's like, how do people, like, how do you tell your story? And then, and then I think another thing is too, is when you tell your stories also, that's a little bit of a longer term play. What I mean by that is, you know, people are always looking for, I want, I want something to happen as soon as possible. Right. And it's like, well, telling your story, like that takes time to build a community and people to understand what they got going on and how you're putting your message out there and, you know, through what platforms and it just takes time, you know, but I think it's one of those things that if you build it correctly from the beginning, Obviously, I think then you you have a certain culture or foundation of things that you're putting in in place that I think would be you know great down the road,
1: yeah, it's this balance between long term marketing and short term marketing, yeah. and so much especially in the digital age our our incentives have been drawn towards short term marketing, right like yeah, you know the whole reason that you see a lot of brands going through these big digital transformation type efforts right now is because basically over the last twenty years, we've just been layering more and more crap on our websites and our marketing programs to solve short-term problems it's like your website's not converting like oh let's not break it down and look at our messaging and the simple experience of our website and how we communicate our value prop and how easy do we make it for people to find out more the answer just becomes oh yeah well let me throw a chap out on here and that'll fix everything and oh no like let's throw some uh Let's just throw some pop-ups on here. And then also let's add in uh, a marketing automation system that will harass everyone with emails every time they visit a solution page or a shopping cart and don't come back. And we just layer more and more of these short-term tactics on top of each other in pursuit of that, you know, quick hit of like, I got uh, this temporary short-term 0.3% increase in my my click-through rate. Or I got 20 more leads, you know, this week than I did last week without a lot of thought to the broader reputation and relationships you're building through your brand. And and that's, I think, what makes content hard inside of a lot of organizations, is that while content can have insane short-term impacts, if you produce a really good piece of content and your audience finds a lot of value out of it, you first do need to establish that audience and that community that trusts you because you have delivered a lot of valuable stuff to them.
0: Yeah. Well it's funny when you're talking about like put up a chat bot and do all that kind of stuff. I, I was debating whether you had read my blog or not, but now that if you said that, I was like, he does read my blog, because that's like the stuff that I write about, which is super uncomfortable. <laughs> no, I'm just we do write about that kind of stuff, but I get your point of like the reason why people like that kind of stuff because it's an easier fix, right? In theory. Not easier fix as in it's gonna fix the problem, but it's a band-aid, you're bleeding out, and put a band-aid on it says, okay, I think this will help. Right. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But the idea is is like if The core of it, if you're, you know, know, I I use a house as an example, like if your foundation isn't good, you can still build on it and continue to build on it. But eventually the foundation is still bad, right? I mean, you haven't gone back to what that originally means and, you know, how you revamp that. And I think that that is a lot bigger task for most people, right? Especially if you're a big organization, it's like, ah, like, how do I, like, even where's the starting point for that? You know, if you have one or two employees, it's easier. If you have 10,000, like, how do you go back and do that? You know I mean? That's obviously a, a pretty huge task. So it's easier to do these Little band aid things that and I'm not saying that a you know a chat bot on your website is a is a you know a small thing or whatever it's not going to make an impact, but it just is in regards to if your if the foundation isn't good, it doesn't matter what you do for the most part.
1: Yeah, and you end up with marketing teams that are spending all of their time managing these different layers of technology stacked on top of each other and reporting on how that technology is doing instead of actually thinking about the needs of the customer, working to understand the customer, and then coming up. With a few really good pieces of messaging and really high quality pieces of content that will make an impact with them. Um, you know, there's very much in marketing today a culture of throwing as much shit against the wall as possible and then not really worrying at all about all of the spaghetti strands that are just like flopping onto the floor and drying up and starting to smell.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of college. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome. So, are you you and Shane Snow? Were you guys remember, You guys were friends. Were you guys friends back in the day or something like childhood friends or something?
1: No, uh, oh. sh- uh, Shane and our founder Joe Coleman are uh. childhood friends from Idaho. Other Joe, uh. Uh, Shane, sh- Shane and I became uh, friends when we just started working together at Contently. So we're we're super close now.
0: Gotcha. That's awesome. So, what do you think? So, we're talking about obviously the pillars of content, right? You guys, you kind of touched on that a little earlier. So when we talk about storytelling, like how big do you think storytelling is when it comes to content marketing? Like how does that play in? Like if you were, you know, so I'm a company and I say, hey, we do content. And you're like, that's great. And then, you know, how do does storytelling play in that? I mean, do you think, let's let's answer that first and I'll ask you another question after that.
1: Yeah, I think that stor- great stories are at the core of most every content asset that you have. So this, this is super obvious how this plays out, you know, at the top of the funnel. In your blog posts, in your videos, it, you need a really good story for people to actually, bother to consume whatever your brand is putting out there as opposed to the million other stories they have buzzing in their pocket every moment, but it also applies to more downfall pieces of content in ways that we don't really think about. Like when you're producing a case study, you should be thinking about, you know, what is the real tension here, right? Like who is the protagonist? How am I crafting a story in which my target audience can see themselves and the person that I helped that, you know, one of my existing clients, what was the challenge that they faced, right? What was the real tension between what is and what could be for them? How was this something they were going out on a limb for in their careers in some way? And then what different hurdles did they have to get over to accomplish their goal? Um, Supplies to your thought leadership as well, right? You should be thinking about that gap between what is in your industry and what could be, and then speaking, you know, in a very authentic and relatable way about like what's wrong in your industry and, and what needs to change. This needs to come through in your sales deck. Like, sales decks shouldn't just be a list of offerings. It should tell a compelling story about who you are, who your company is, what you really care about, and where you see everything headed, and the type of uh, future that you could build together with one of your customers. So, I think stories are embedded in, in all of these things. Obviously, there's types of content marketing that aren't story driven, right? Like, if you're putting out an assessment or a quiz for people, there's usually not really a story in that. If you're creating a mortgage calculator, there's not a story in a mortgage calculator, but however, those tools usually fit into the broader story that you're telling about what you think people need to care about.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean that all makes sense. You know, it's so funny when you say it, it sounds simplistic in, in the sense of how you explain it. It's like, okay, that makes natural sense, right? But I don't but I, I don't see it enough, I would say. I mean, there's so many companies that I see when they're missing that piece. I mean, I would even say my company is missing some components of that, right? Where I have to look at things and go, okay, now is this really the, what we want to be putting out there? Yeah, you know, let me look at our sales decks and stuff like that. I mean, there's always, I don't know. It's interesting. That's a, I mean, I think it's a good way of thinking about things. And I, I just, once again, it's one of those things I like, I got to go back to my sales deck and take a look at that. But, um, so what would you say? We And you, we've talked, I guess we've talked about this or touched on it a few times. What are the pillars? You said about four, you said you do a presentation um, on that and the little speaking thing on the four pillars of of, uh, content marketing. Like what do you consider the four pillars?
1: So, I mean, I think there's a few different ways you can answer this question, but you know, some of the, the biggest keys are one, the content has to be really good. Like if your content, if you're not leveraging the best storytellers in your industry to create content that's can compete with everything else your audience you know, has a choice to consume at any given moment. You have no chance to break through, um, and you have to be saying something completely new. Like you, if you're creating a piece of content where you know ten tips for social media marketing for small businesses that uh, someone could go and Google and find fifty alternatives that are just as good, you're not going to do anything to build your brand. Um, so you really need to commit to telling stories that are unique um, and compete can compete with the best of what's out there. I think that you have to take a very audience-centric view um, of your content strategy. It sounds a little buzzwordy, but basically just create stuff that your audience is, generally, is genuinely passionate about. Um, there's this pyramid called Polycov's Pyramid of Engagement uh, that this British agency Cell Cell created like 10 years ago. And I love it because it's a pyramid and just a little bit at the top uh, lists things that your audience is likely to care about which is things that they're passionate about if you're B2C. So like wellness, health, travel, um, fitness. Like if you can help those do those things better, they'll be interested in it. Or their job. If you're B2B and you can help them do their job better, learn a new skill, get that promotion, be better at their career, that's content people will be really interested in. Hmm. Um, And then the rest of the pyramid is everything else, which they have this great phrase, audience is not likely to give a monkey's chuff. I don't even know what a monkey's chuff is. Um, but so many brands start in that big part of the pyramid that is everything else, right? It's like, well, what is the message we want to get out here there about this product launch today? Instead of starting with what are the challenges that our audience is facing? What are stories that we can tell about what they need to do to move up in their career? And then you can find ways that your product and your offering integrate into that, right? Um, but we often just start, from the wrong place when it comes to audience-centric storytelling. Um, the third key is viewing uh, really content, not just a top of funnel activity, but a full funnel, full customer journey activity. What I'll say that you see inside a lot of organizations is that it's a heckle and jide situation It feels super schizophrenic and that you'll get all this really useful content at the top of the funnel, but as soon as you convert into a marketing qualified lead and you talk to a salesperson, Uh, it's a totally different scenario where you're not getting that helpful, consultative, uh, sort of lighthearted tone that you got there. You know, it's like, you've gone for being like Beyonce, Beyonce, Beyonce. And then suddenly you're talking to Jeff, the used car salesman. Um, and it just feels like this very disjointed and very unsatisfactory, uh, experience for customers. Um, so marketing really needs to come to own the full customer journey, especially when it comes to the content you're creating. Uh, and so those to me are, are some of the biggest keys that come into content marketing. I think depending on the problem, there's different ways that you can frame it. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously it's really important that you're mapping all of your content goals and marketing goals to larger business goals. Like you're not just looking at vanity metrics like page views and shares and likes, but that's just logical good marketing.
0: Yeah. So what do you guys do at Contently? Like, word of regards, I mean, is it a lot of storytelling type stuff? Or, I mean, what is the mix that you guys do at Contently?
1: So what's interesting is Contently started as a freelance. We had this freelance network of, you know, tens of thousands of freelance creatives, writers, filmmakers, videographers, um, that we wanted to connect with brands that we saw that they needed high quality talent to be able to create good content. Over the years, and how that we evolved is in two ways, is one, we realized, oh, Things are chaotic inside of big brands. They need a platform that integrates with their CMS, with Salesforce, everything to manage all of this content. Yeah. So we focused a lot in building that up, becoming a little more of a SaaS company. And then the third piece that I was in charge of for a few years was building up our content strategy arm because we realized, oh, we can give brands all of these great writers and filmmakers and we can give them an awesome platform to manage everything. Yeah. But a lot of brands don't know what they should be creating or what to do or how to map this content to their customer journey and how to prove out ROI to their CMO and their CFO. So let's build that up as well. So where we've landed is this very much three-pronged solution of great content strategy services, a content marketing platform to actually operationalize all of the things that we recommend, and then our content talent network that allows you to connect with you know writers who can actually create extremely good content in your industry. And it's been an interesting wild ride just seeing the industry evolve and coming to understand the needs of our clients and building the solution along with them. One thing I'm really proud of is that the average piece of content created through Contently gets a 4.85 out of 5 rating on average from our clients. So I feel like we've done this really hard thing of figuring out how to create content that people are really happy with. But now the challenge that we face more and more is figuring out how to help our clients that are usually these smaller marketing teams within an organization spread what they're doing to everyone else across the org. And and that to me is, you know, the next era of our industry where we see content really start to spread its wings um, and become a more dominant force inside of enterprise marketing orgs.
0: What kind of reporting do you guys do? So in other words, if I was a client, I'd come and grab some content for you guys what are the metrics or the KPIs or what do you guys look at when it, you know, to say hey, this was a successful piece of content?
1: Yeah, it depends on the goal for the piece of content. So our own analytics at contently are more awareness focused. So it's basically like a little bit like Chartbeat, If you remember chart beat, which is deep engagement metrics around how much time are people spending with your content? How much are they returning to it? What's their finish rate? Um, you know, We have this product, Docalytics, that gives you that information on PDF content, which no one else in the industry has. Uh, But more and more, what we find ourselves doing is, you know, the truth is that no one piece of marketing technology is going to give you the full picture of how your content's performing, right? Like, we're not going to do that. Google Analytics isn't going to do that unless you have a really simple conversion flow pathway that you want to look at. Like, Salesforce just on its own isn't going to do that. Marketo on its own isn't going to do that. So a lot of the work honestly has come to helping our clients bring all their data from their disparate sources into a single data visualization tool like Looker, Tableau, or Domo, or Google Data Studio, so that they can get one holistic picture of how their content's performing across a range of KPIs. Because usually, it isn't just one goal, right? It isn't just an engagement or brand awareness goal for your content. You also want it to drive leads. And then, oh, we want to see how those leads are then converting into MQLs and how they're becoming SQLs or Ops. and Oh, is are any of the leads that are coming in in that entire flow turning into deals eventually? If you want to do that, you need to get data from at least three sources in most cases. So, you know, I personally think that like any marketing technology company that's coming there and is like, we have the one metric that'll solve it all and the analytics that you need, the only analytics that you need to be successful, that's BS. Like it's total BS. The biggest value that I think we can provide is just helping our clients use the technology that they already have in house but setting the right KPIs and bringing it in in an easy to visualize way and easy way to report up the chain
0: to their executives. Yeah, make it presentable, palatable. And what are three softwares that you like if, if they they tip these away from you today that you could not live without? Like what are three softwares you're like, man, this is like I couldn't live without this this and this.
1: I mean, practically in my day-to-day job, I would, you know, we would die without uh WordPress. Salesforce and Marketo. Like that's where like all of our func- marketing functions live as well as MailChimp. But that's not a super interesting answer. So I'd say like more fun strategy technologies that I really like. I am a huge SEMrush fan yeah. for SEO. I think SEMrush, no better <laughs> SEO software for your money. I've really like concurred. Um, I'll give Tom Salva and those guys a shout out. They're a really small content strategy app. AI company out of London. They have a really cool tool that we just started using. I also super love Quizzer for assessments, which we use for both like lead gen stuff, you know, understand what your content marketing goals are, as well as just fun things like what media company are you? Or uh, one of our most popular quizzes I made was, is this headline about Kim Kardashian or Pokemon Go? So I just took, this is like when Pokemon Go was big. Yeah. So I just took out Kim Kardashian or Pokemon Go from the headline and created a quiz for that. And it was like shockingly hard to differentiate which one it was. <laughs> and that probably had no marketing value for us, but it did get taken like 100,000 times.
0: Damn, that's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of cool when you see those kind of things go. you just, Sometimes you just never know. Well you know what it's thing. this is and this is kind of a loose connection, but I see this a lot with this kind of a connection with people in tipping, and I've seen this at like coffee shops and stuff, and they'll put like, do you like I don't know, Kim Kardashian or Chloe Kardashian, and then you can put your tip in on whatever one you like and I don't, I don't know why that's like stupid, it's stupid, but it's what's funny about it is i I've, I've talked to people that are in the industry that say they see a lot more tips because of that. And what I mean by that is just like I don't know it's just one of those things is like, what do you like better? and I, it's kind of it kind of ties into what you were saying just in the sense of like you look at these two different things. Can you differentiate between the two of them? So it's kind of, anyway. It's kind of funny that people were were taking that, and, and that you had that many people take that. Uh, that's kind of cool. So what do you guys like outside of you know who you currently work for? What are some other companies that you think are crushing it? Like for like when it comes to content marketing, like their campaigns and stuff. Some companies you said, man, these guys over here are doing a phenomenal job.
1: And one of my all-time favorites has just always been Dollar Shave Club.
0: Yeah, the video.
1: Yeah, I love this. Well. Yeah. I mean, the story of that is amazing. Like it's Michael Dubin, the guy had started, he was just an improv comic in New York who held a few marketing jobs and he was, he was just at a Christmas party uh, that his dad was throwing and he started talking to one of his dad's kind of sketchy friends. And the dude was like, yeah, I got like these hundred thousand razors in China. They're super cheap. Just don't know what to do with them. And he like got this idea that, you know, buying razors sucks. He could create a subscription razor company but because he was just some like 29 year old improv actor in New York, no one wanted to fund him. So he took his last five grand, he made that viral dollar shave club video, and that's what launched his entire business. And when Unilever bought them, they paid a billion dollars for them, but the analysts thought they only should have been valued at 300 million. But the reason Unilever paid so much is because All the stories that Dollar Shave Club put out there, you know, every time they launch a new product, they do a new viral video. They they would ship their bathroom reader with every single order. Um, They started Mel, which is like an awesome men's magazine that legitimately competes with GQ now. And because of those relationships they built through stories, you know, they were able to have just an absolutely insane exit. I think they've, you know, done a great job. Patagonia obviously like the documentaries they put out is are beautiful. The way they actually live their values as a brand of caring about, you know, the environment and the, the passions of the outdoors, I think comes across so well. Red Bull's the example that everyone uses, but still the way they've built a legitimate extreme sports media empire yeah. I think you can't deny there's someone we've definitely tried to work with a bunch over the years, but they're very German and very hard to get in touch with, yeah. but they would be a dream client to work with, I have to say. Yeah, because they're, they're like an entertainment
0: company, right? I mean, they yeah. They're selling a product is, is just secondary. Yeah. Yeah. They're just great. Same with Monster, kind of that same thing of like, hey, we're more entertainment, getting the word out, having fun, content type stuff. Which is cool yeah do you have any other side projects you're working on right now I mean either with like yourself or you are writing a book or you, you got anything fun in side projects yeah
1: working on another book can't announce anything yet but have a very interesting co-creator I'm working on with it that I'm super excited about otherwise you know Shane and I have a couple things in the works that we've been doing on the side that I also can't talk about but that I'm excited about so you know, I have no life. Like, I just work a lot, really, here in, like everyone else in New York. So it's a lot of- uh, outside of the day-to-day, there's a couple side hustles.
0: And I know you can't talk on it, but the new book you're coming out with, is it have anything to do with you and Larry, or is, it, or is that not?
1: You know, I never actually met Larry because he came right after I graduated. So I was already wreaking mayhem in the Lower East Side by the time uh, he came around to Sarah Lawrence. One of my friends, there's this one kid, Daniel, who is the main source for the story. And one of my friends from Sarah Lawrence did run into him in LA where he was the hotel valet. Like he got off the plane, had just read the story from San Fran, LA, started talking to this guy. And the guy was like, I'm Daniel from the story
0: Uh, that's wild yeah that's like full circle hello yeah well i'm gonna i'm excited about the larry guy i'm gonna go go stalk him a little bit so i also so we you know obviously there's always questions that we send over to people and and i sent one over to you that i thought was gonna be super interesting and i was like oh this is gonna be some juicy stuff about a nickname of mr peanut butter but then you told me like there's really no great story that was like it's an ex-girlfriend and it's really not exciting there's like but you did say that you do have a nickname of Laser, so we're gonna transfer the peanut butter energy over to the laser energy. And tell me a little bit: how'd you get that? how you get that nickname?
1: Yeah, so like, Laser is what everyone at work calls me. It's literally like just my work nickname. <laughs> everyone in my normal life calls me Joe, which normally you think it would be the reverse. <laughs> and it started because when I first was working with Contently, our old director of accounts, Rob, uh, changed my name in Gmail and his contacts to Joey Laser as like a being from jersey joke like yeah yeah joey laser from jersey shore go down seaside heineken's and bombs all night and so he changed my name and Gmail to joey laser and suddenly these clients i was working with thought that was my real name so they started calling me laser and it just sort of snowballed from there and like everyone calls me laser now like all of our clients know me as laser everyone at work calls me laser which makes me sound like a a drunk frat boy um which i Actually, Sarah Lawrence doesn't have frats, so I never had that <laughs> point in my life. Um, yeah. I was just a a writer and at a feminist college. Yeah, that's just like my personal brand now. I guess is is laser. That's
0: it. So you can never get rid of the laser. Do you think when you pass away that you'll put that on your tombstone?
1: I mean, uh, it depends. You know how close I get. Uh, how long it sticks. You know, like yeah. You know, eventually, like. Won't work I can tell you. So like, will that carry through there? Like, is that going to be my permanent brand? Maybe in quotation marks or something. Yeah. You know, there's worse nicknames in the world to have than laser. Really?
0: Talk about that or
1: No, I mean, like I don't, I haven't had uh, any personally, but like one of my friends is, his nickname is squeak from uh, what was that? From basketball. Like that, the South park. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: So that's a way worse nickname is being called squeak than laser yeah
0: laser like i mean has some i mean there's like major laser which is you know i mean there's i think there's lasers not bad but yeah there's definitely some other ones that can i mean i was named this was at my church group was a whole nother story but there was a girl that called me rocky and that was and i I was thinking rocky the fighter i was like oh that's awesome like i'll take that she was no rocky and bullwinkle so i like instantly got downgraded like i was like oh shoot i don't want everybody to know that one um that's a very 1960s reference right yeah i mean that's no this was right I think she was a hundred. No, I don't know. She was, I don't know. She probably at that. No, she was in like a team group. She had to been like 17 or something. I don't know. I, like I said, she called me Rocky and I was like, I'm, I was pumped. I was like, yeah, that's awesome. Like Rocky, you know, cause that was Rocky and obviously all the fighting stuff was awesome. And then she downgraded me. I, I think I switched churches. I was so pissed, but anyways, <laughs> shout out to Nikki for giving me a terrible, terrible nickname at that time. That is gone now, except I just brought it up my podcast. So, do you do a lot of traveling, bud? I mean, you were kind of touching that. You said you don't have a dog because you do a lot of traveling. Like, where do you, where do you travel to? What's your favorite travel destination?
1: Oof, that's a good question. I spent, uh, so I had a two-month sabbatical from Contently this winter. After five years, you get a two-month paid sabbatical. So I finally took it this winter and went to Honduras, Brazil, and Colombia, which is awesome. Yeah, Rio's incredible. I'm a big fan of Colombia as well. I've been there a few times. Uh, probably, like, my favorite place that I've been there I really want to go back to is Albania. I hitchhiked in Albania when I was 21 years old. I hadn't yet seen Taken, or I don't think Taken had even come out yet. So like, I didn't quite know it was like a bad idea to just like hitchhike through through Albania, and uh, it was amazing. Like, it's everyone's super friendly. It's super cheap. Got in some really weird adventures, and it has this super special place in my heart. But yeah, I, I travel as much as I can now that I've switched over from being client facing, running content strategy to in-house with marketing a little bit less travel than usual which is kind of nice but uh, yeah there's there's a lot of great places in this world man.
0: I do it's funny those and it's very seldom that somebody will say four countries that I haven't been to. I've, I've been a good amount of places. Um, I haven't been to Colombia. Oh, I haven't been to actually any four of the places that you said um, but I've I, Albania that would be something that would be on my list but maybe I need to add that to my one of my top 10 or top 20 list for sure. Yeah,
1: do a nice little run from Croatia to Montenegro to yeah. Albania to Greece. It's like a it's a really nice Mediterranean stretch.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I I I travel quite a bit, but I really I want to start traveling more. I'm always looking for. I've said this before. In my podcast, like any kind of keynote speaking opportunities, if I get a chance, and if it's in a country I haven't been to, my rates go down to pennies on the dollar compared to what I would usually charge. So I I enjoy that because it's like I want to go to that country. So. I don't know, maybe I'll make a map on my website and then people will look at it and they can lowball me in the countries that I haven't been to yet. And then hopefully I'll hit all the countries and then I'll be back up to my normal rate. Um, I guess we'll see how that works out for me. So all right, so let's choose. So since you're a big writer and if you had an opportunity to, um, let's say if you had dinner with an an author that was either alive or dead, so it can be, once again can either be around or not be around. Is there one author that you're like, I would have dinner with blah, blah, blah?
1: I'm a huge David Sedaris fan. So I'd love... Love to have dinner with David Sedaris. I've met him at a couple book signings. Yeah. But those are really like short interactions. Yeah. I love to trade stories with David Sedaris. I think Jessie Klein, I love her collection, You'll Grow Out of It. She's a writer for uh, Tina Fey on 30 Rock and a couple other projects. I feel like she's more like an attainable person I could possibly have dinner with one day than David Sedaris, who's like lives in the French countryside and is a huge introvert. Yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll put her as a backup in case she's out there listening. Yeah. I don't know why Jesse Klein would be in the influencer marketing right. podcast, but you never know.
0: Uh, it's You just never know. I, I mean, I only have two people listen to it. So your odds are pretty low right now, but we're going to look to get maybe four to eight people. <laughs> Real soon, we're going to be doubling, tripling in size. So it's about percentage of increase. We don't really look at exact numbers. That way it should look like we're growing.
1: You show that hockey stick chart, man. That's
0: how it matters, But I'm like, listen, I'm at 16 now. I was at eight last week. You do the math, right? I mean, I'm growing leaps and bounds. So if she wanted to get in contact with you or if anybody else wanted to get in contact with you, um, how can they do that? How do they go about doing that? What's your, can you give out your email, can we, what do you have a Instagram, what do we got?
1: Yeah, I mean, Twitter is where I live, like most New York media marketing people. So just at Joe Lozowskis on Twitter, DMs are open, holler at me.
0: There we go. There we go. Joe, it's been a pleasure, buddy. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for the stories too. I'm going to go look up Larry after this. Hopefully you might probably have Homeland Security come and take a look at me if i Get too crazy with the Larry story. But once again, thanks for telling us about that, man. Hope you have an awesome day. And like I said, as soon as this thing comes out, we'll send you out all the fun information and uh, we'll kind of go from there.
1: All right, great. Thanks, Rocky.
0: All right, brother, man. All right, take care.